So as we continue in our, our, our series on Mark, you know, in our scripture reading, you heard Natalie uh, read about two miracles Jesus performed. The first one may be very familiar with you. As I shared last week, if you were here, Mark doesn't spend a lot of time uh, detailing a lot of Jesus' teachings. We looked at the first of his two long teaching passages last week, and now we're back uh, to this passage where we are, you know, hear about the miracles, and throughout the rest of chapter 5, it's talking about miracles. And, and since we're going through Mark at this rapid pace, one, thing, one of the things that's been interesting for me as I prepare uh, these messages is seeing the connection between the subsections of the passages. You know, whereas some preachers might spend one week focusing on Jesus calming the storm, and then the next week talk about Jesus hearing, healing the garrison demoniac, um, we have to, I have to cover both passages, you know, this morning. And in doing so, I need to think about the relationship between these passages and why Mark would write about them this way. And there's some interesting connections with these passages, which I hope to show you this morning. As we get into the, um, this passage, you know, you see in the first um, section, or the first header in your outline, demons or disciples versus demons. And in writing this, you know, I'm not trying, I'm not trying to refer to like some epic battle, like some Marvel action movie. You know, I want us actually in writing this to contrast between the disciples' reactions in the first miracle and the demons' reaction in the next. In the first miracle, Jesus had just um, finished teaching the crowds from a boat, and he instructs the disciples, you know, to lift up anchor, go out to sea. And maybe they thought, you know, that since they had such a long day of teaching, that they were going to, you know, lift up, uh, you know, lift up and set out for sail and get away for, you know, maybe a day or two of rest. Mark says there were other boats in the, you know, with them, but. Jesus stayed in the disciples' boat, you know, one reason presumably because that's the boat he was in, but also, you know, we could infer that maybe he was also in the boat because they were the most experienced sailors. But as we heard in the scripture passage, the trip wasn't as pleasant as, as they were hoping for because it says a furious squall came up. I'm not sure if furious squall is like the best translation uh, for this, uh, you know, uh, for the way it describes it in the original language. For in the original language, I think it better captures the magnitude of this storm. The Greek, in the Greek, the word used for storm can also mean hurricane. And this word megale, which is where we get the term mega, is also used to describe, you know, this storm. So it's, so you could also, you know, literally translate it as there was this mega hurricane. There was this mega hurricane that was, you know, wreaking havoc on the boat. And remember, these are experienced fishermen, you know, that were, you know, on the boat, in charge of the boat. But it says they were scared. They probably, you know, experienced many storms in their lives, in their fishing experience, but they never had to weather a storm like this one. Even if the waves, you know, the, the waves are so violent, it says they were crashing against the boat. Maybe there's some fear that the waves pounding the boat was going to even break the boat in half. Even if that wasn't the case, it says the water was coming so fast on the boat that they couldn't bail out the water fast enough. They knew they were in danger. In verse 38, the NIV version uses the word drown. But actually, in the Greek, a more literal translation of the word would be destroyed. 
They knew they were about to be destroyed, so they panicked. They were terrified, and they were in fear, so they turned to Jesus, who comically could sleep through all of this. You know, Jesus, don't you care that we're about to be destroyed? And of course, there must be some irony in the fact that these experienced sailors are turning to a carpenter to ask him for help in the midst of this storm. But they knew something about Jesus was different. The interesting thing to me is that even though they turned to Jesus, based on their reaction in the end, I'm not really sure what they expected Jesus to do. You know, granted, they had seen Jesus heal the sick and paralyzed. They had seen him previously drive out demons and claim to be able to forgive sins. But it doesn't seem that they knew or felt that Jesus had power over nature. You know, they knew if they were going to be saved, God would have to intervene, but they didn't know how. But then a few brief words by Jesus, and then the storm stopped. Both the wind and the waves completely died down, which would be highly unusual, because if you think about it, even if the winds died down or stopped completely, the waves would still continue, right? But it says both the winds and the waves were stilled. And the sea was completely calm. In the Greek, this word mega was used again. So the, the sea was mega calm. It was perfectly calm. The disciples had never seen anything like this. And Jesus asked them in verse 40, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? In other words, he's challenging them. You know, through all that you've been with me, through all the time spent with me and all the things you've seen me say and do, haven't I proven to you yet that you can trust me? And fast forward to the next miracle. So the disciples and the other boats complete their journey to the other side of the sea, but any thought the disciples had of possibly getting some rest quickly vanished as they encounter a man living among the tombs possessed by many demons. And the way Mark describes this man, he could be almost like a Marvel action villain. Because it says in verse 3 and 4 of chapter 5 that no one could bind him, even with a chain. For he had often been chained hand and foot, but he tore the chains apart and broke the irons on his feet. No one was strong enough to subdue him because of his supernatural strength. Like I said, this could be like a Marvel villain. Like you could call him like Tomb Dweller or Grave Digger or something like that. I actually looked, and there is a Marvel action villain called Tombstone. So maybe you could have called him that. But here is this tortured soul who couldn't even sleep at night because it continues in verse 5, that night and day among the tombs and the hills he would cry out and he would cut himself with stones. In verse 6, it's interesting, it says, When the man saw Jesus from a distance, he ran on his knees and fell in front of him. Why did this man do this? Because it actually wasn't the man who did this, but the demons inside the man, for they knew who Jesus was. In the Greek, this word where it says, you know, where we read, fall on his knees, is proskuneo. And if that word sounds familiar with you, it's because it's the Greek word for worship. Though they knew who Jesus was, they weren't necessarily coming to worship him, but they knew they had to bow down before him and beg for mercy. 
Verse 7, he, meaning the evil spirits inside the man, shouted at the top of their voice, What do you want from me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? Swear to God that you won't torture me. They knew more about Jesus than the disciples did. The demons' beliefs in Jesus were actually greater than the disciples. You know, no one could subdue the man because of the demons. But when the demons saw Jesus, they could do nothing but fall to their knees. They acknowledged he was son of the Most High God, meaning he was the God in flesh, the promised Messiah. They knew he had authority to control them and judge them, to permanently you know, send them to hell if he wanted them to. And so they were begging for mercy. One commentator wrote that by using this title, Son of the Most High God, the demons established the uniqueness of Jesus' position in relation to God Almighty and the universality of his power. So when you think about it, in his encounter with the demoniac, Jesus never had to question the faith of the demons. Though they did refuse to worship him as Lord, their beliefs and knowledge of him were intact. Jesus, on the other hand, had to question the faith of the disciples. Do you still have no faith? So as we see and think about this divergence, where would you fall along the spectrum? Do you see Jesus as the one who has authority over both the natural and the supernatural? Is he really sovereign over all things? And what you're dealing with and going through currently, do you trust him in the ways he's working in your life? Or do you doubt? And there's a second interesting connection between these two miracles, which you can see I titled The Fear Factor. After Jesus calmed the storm and questioned the disciples about their faith, it says in chapter 4, verse 41, the disciples were terrified and asked each other, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. In the encounter with the demon-possessed man, you heard from the scripture reading that Jesus drives out the demons by allowing the evil spirits to go into a herd of pigs who immediately go crazy because of the demons in them and then plunge off the cliff to their deaths. And the townspeople were told of all that had happened, so they came out to see Jesus and the man who, had, who was now demon-free. And when they came out to inspect things for themselves, it says at the end of verse 15 that they were afraid. For the disciples, when you think about all that they had previously witnessed during their time with Jesus and the miracle that they had just experienced, you would think that they would fall down before Jesus, acknowledge that he is indeed the Messiah and worship him. You know, they may tell him, like, Lord, you are God. I will never doubt you again. I won't be afraid anymore. But they didn't. It says they were terrified. The way it is, it's written in Mark, it infers that they were more terrified at the end of the storm, even after Jesus saved them from death, than they were during the midst of the storm when they knew there was certain death. And likewise for the town people, though they were Gentiles, you would have thought that after seeing the, uh, seeing Jesus subdue the, uh, the demons and the man, that none of them could subdue or control, they would recognize that Jesus, 
either must be God or have some close connection with God and acknowledge such. But they didn't. They were afraid. Here too, it seems that they were more afraid of seeing Jesus and the man in his right mind than they were of the demoniac when he was possessed by legions of demons. Instead of you know, bringing out more of their sick and hurting to Jesus for healing, they asked for him to leave. And though two different words uh, are used in our English translations for fear, and the Greek you know, the root word in, in the Greek translation is the same for both, you know, phobos, which is where we get phobia, right? So both the disciples and townspeople were terrified of Jesus. Why? Well, I believe it's because they knew who was next to him, or next to them. They knew that the person next to them was indeed the living God, the holy and almighty one. And when you know you're in the presence of the holy, sinless God, you also recognize who you are in front of them, or in front of him. You know, if you were here last week, you remember I referenced Isaiah 6, where Isaiah had this vision of him before God. And what was his response? Many of you are familiar with you know, Isaiah crying out, Woe to me, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king. In another sea encounter with Jesus, Jesus in Luke 5 helped some of the disciples catch the biggest catch of fish they ever had in their lives. And what is Peter's response? Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. And it's the same in our passage. Terror for the disciples and townspeople. And the townspeople, like Peter, say, go away from us. Leave. Maybe we understand the fear factor of drawing close to Jesus. Because like all these examples, we recognize who we are before him. That we are sinful and flawed and unholy. And we stand before a sinless, perfect, holy God. And so instead of wanting to get closer to him, we want to distance ourselves. And though these feelings are quite natural and understandable, we also need to realize what God's response was in all of these situations. For Isaiah, after Isaiah cries out his unworthiness before a holy God, God has an angel come and cleanse Isaiah from his sins and make him suitable for service. And Peter, after Peter asked Jesus to depart from him uh, after the big catch of fish, Jesus instead invites Peter and his companions to rather follow him and become fishers of men. For the disciples in the boat, Jesus continues to love and teach and equip them for ministry while extending mercy and grace in times of their failure. And even for the Gentile townspeople, Jesus tells the healed demoniac to go back into the towns and villages and tell people what God has done for him. And later we'll see that God had used the man's testimony to bring some of the Gentiles to faith. But in these and every example we see in the Bible, when people sincerely come to God in faith, he never turns them away. Rather than us 
saying, God, please go away. God is like, no, please come near. And so do you have the faith that Jesus is someone you would want to draw close to instead of pulling back from? And just very quickly, I want to share like three very simple things that you can do to grow in greater faith in God. First is, very simply, build the relationship. Oops, sorry. Build the relationship. You remember... You know, why is it that you trust your best friend, your spouse, your family so much? Because you spent time building the relationship. You spent many hours together. You've done a lot of activities together. You know, so you know the other person. You know their character. You know you can trust them. And I've spoken with people who say they want to have greater faith in God, but I find they hardly are spending any time with him either reading his word, praying to him, meditating on his word, getting involved in Christian activities and fellowship with others. You know, set aside regular times during the week to spend with him, to build this relationship so you know that this is a God that you can truly put your trust in. Next is remember. Remember God's faithfulness in the past. In Joshua 4, after the Israelites had crossed the Jordan River in preparation to enter the Promised Land, God gave these instructions to Joshua. He says, Choose twelve men from among the people, one from each tribe, and tell them to take up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, from right where the priest stood, and to carry them over with you and put them down at the place where you stayed tonight. So Joshua had the people do this, and then he shared with them later in Joshua 4, In the future... When your children ask you, what do you want, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. These stories are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. In other words, God is having the people do this so that they and future generations remember his faithfulness to them in the past. And so if they were going through trials or struggles, they could look back at those stones and they could recall how God had been faithful to them in the past and would continue to do so in the future because he promised to. And so when you think about it, what are some events in your life that you can use as quote-unquote stones where you could point to God's faithfulness in the past and use them as reminders that he will continue to be faithful to you in the future? For me, I can look back at several incidents and see how God has been faithful and providing for me financially and through employment opportunities when I was struggling uh, with these things at the time. So I know I can trust them in these areas. And so what about you? What are things that you can reflect back on and know that because of these things and his faithfulness in the past, you can trust them in the future? And then finally, take risks. Take risks for the kingdom. Intentionally place yourself in situations where you have to stretch your faith and trust in God. Because if you just stay you know, in your comfort zone, if you just go through your daily routine, you won't even feel like you need to have faith because you're doing things that are so familiar and comfortable. But if at times you sense a prompting by the Holy Spirit, maybe to speak to a classmate or a coworker about Christ. If you feel a prompting, 
to serve in some ministry or serve someone, act on it. And let God use you, or God use you and use it to build your faith as you see him equipping you for the task. As I referenced before, it's interesting to see what happened to the demoniac after he was healed. So in verse 18, it says, the man begged to go with Jesus. He wanted, in other words, to be with him. And if you've been you know, in, in, you know, with us throughout this series, you may remember a few weeks ago when Pastor Jeff preached on, uh, I think it was Mark 2 maybe, or, or Mark 1, you know, he talked about you know, being with Jesus as being equivalent to being a disciple of Jesus. So in other words, the man was telling Jesus, let me be with you. Let me be your disciple. Let me follow you. But how does Jesus respond? He says, no. Like, no, you cannot. I don't want you to follow me. But what does he instead tell him to do? He says, go back to your home and tell people what God has done for you. In other words, he sent them out right away to be an evangelist. Now think about it. The man just had, had just met Jesus and was healed. But Jesus didn't tell him to come and be his disciple for a while and get some training. He didn't say, oh, you know, before I send you out, you have to go through this evangelism course on how to have spiritual conversations with unbelievers. You know, he didn't say, oh, here, let me show you this neat bridge illustration you can use to share your faith with the Gentile townspeople. He just said, go and tell others about me. And with no training, the man did it. How effective was he? You can find that in later passages, when Jesus returned to that region, many people came to Jesus bringing the sick to be healed by him. Why would they do that? How would they know about it? Because they heard the man's testimony and what he had done for him. That's all it took for them to come to Jesus. He went in faith, and God used his efforts to bear fruit. So go and take risks by placing yourself in positions where you need to really trust God. Then you will see what God can do, and your faith will increase. So may we have greater faith than demons, and unlike the demons, in recognizing who Jesus is, truly is. May we live our lives to honor and serve him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. Uh, I'm just very thankful that though these passages, you know, are very familiar, maybe very familiar to many of us, you know, we can continue to glean truth as we see the relationship between these stories and, and the things that you try to teach us through them. Father, we thank you that you have shown your love and grace upon us through the death of Jesus dying on the cross to forgive our sins so that we can be reconciled in our relationship with you. And so, Lord, let us go in that knowledge, knowing that you do love and have grace and mercy upon us and that we can have faith in you knowing that you are more than capable and trustworthy to do any task and equip us for any task that you ask of us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.